Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles or open your apps to Ephesians 6, if you would. We're going to talk a little bit about what Paul has to say about unity today, hopefully from that chapter. Before I start, though, let me ask, is America at war? Where? Everywhere. Whereabouts? Afghanistan, Iraq, terrorism. Where else? Right here in America, right? What are we fighting over here? Abortion, male, female, black, white, north, south, liberal, conservative, war on poverty, war on crime, war on drugs. How many other things can we war on in this country? What about Catholic, Protestant, Protestant, Protestant? What about our own personal relationships? We have an enemy that's trying to divide us. Have you noticed that in your life? Have anybody upset with you this morning? You happen to be upset with the person sitting next to you this morning? I think unity's in jeopardy and God's a little concerned about his church. <laughs> he said it's good and pleasant when the brethren dwell together and often we don't dwell in unity, but we come up with wonderful solutions like this. Let's, uh, yeah, we'll go to the same church, but I'm going to sit on one side, you're going to sit on the other, or... Maybe two services. No, I shouldn't say that. Uh, we come up with our way of solving things, which is usually not God's way. So today we're going to take a look at Ephesians 6 and see what God has to say about unity, right? We're supposed to be fighting for Christ, for the gospel, for lost souls. That's our purpose. Yet instead we tend to fight against each other. We, we don't go after the cults or after humanism or after Islam or after the evil in the world, but we tend to, as they say, put our firing squads in a circle. We shoot our own. So what does Paul say in Ephesians 6? Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're at war. The enemy knows that a house divided can't stand. So he comes and works his ways with his schemes and his tricks to try and get us to war with each other. And believe it or not, we all have a part in it. He works on all of us. He always has since the Garden of Eden. He's very effective at what he does. Interestingly, it starts out in verse 12 that says, We war not against flesh and blood. Understand what this means. My fight is not with you. Your fight is not with me. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not your mother-in-law. It's not the telemarketer that calls you at dinner time. It's not the guy that cuts you off in traffic. It's not the unruly boss. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. It feels like we fight each other, doesn't it? And people may be the agitators, the aggravators, that's true, but we actually are in a spiritual battle, an unseen warfare that affects our relationships. Some people take this to extremes. You see it in the movies, you see it on TV, you see it in books. There's so many places where even preachers, right, casting out the demons of the nosebleed and the flat tire, right? They go way too much overboard giving too much credit to Satan and paying too much attention to him. The other extreme is to ignore it altogether and say it doesn't really exist. Well, that's not what Scripture says. There's a balance here, and it does say that 
Warfare is real. It's personal. We have an enemy that hates us because Christ loves us. And he's going to come to do whatever he can do, cause us to trip up, cause us to stumble, cause us in any way he can to bring discord and to strain our relationships, make us ineffective for the gospel of Christ. That's all he can do. He's a defeated enemy. But he figured at least he'll try to wreak havoc in the kingdom as it progresses. One of the things he does for sure is he keeps the world from seeing a love that we're supposed to have one for another. A love that only we can have one for another. A love that's supposed to show the world that Christ came and died for us. And yet he's very good at keeping us from showing love, even to one another at time. So what is the major casualty of this war? I want to suggest this morning it's relationships. Why do I say that? Because of the context of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians starts out in the first few chapters of how we were enemies of God and he reconciled us to himself. How the Jews and Gentiles were separate and he broke down that wall of separation and made them one. Then he goes on for a few chapters how now we're supposed to walk as children of light in unity. One faith, one God, one Lord, one baptism. We're supposed to be walking together. We're supposed to be learning together until we all come to the unity of the faith. He talks over and over again about the unity, the, the oneness that we have in fellowship in Christ. And then, of course, chapter 5, the great chapter on marriage, husband and wives. Chapter 6 starts out with children obey your parents and goes through that before he talks about masters and slaves or employers and employees and what that relationship is supposed to look like. And then he comes to a place and says, finally, finally, we have a battle plan, and that's first to be strong in the Lord and his might. We need God's help in this battle. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. There may be a whole bunch of angels duking it out with some demons in this room right now. Can anybody see them? I can't. I can't engage in that warfare other than in prayer. But there's no way that I can see the realm, understand the realm, but I have to believe that it's happening. I have to believe that there is a battle going on. And yet we do the uh, Frank Sinatra Christian thing, trying to do things my way instead of God's way, and we get in thinking we can join this fray and actually resolve it without the strength of the Lord. So a lady had a t-shirt that said, I used to have superpowers, but my therapist took them away. <laughs> Hate to tell you this, but you didn't have superpowers, and I can also tell you this from God's word, that when men confront angels, it doesn't work out too good for men. So our goal is to understand it's a spiritual battle. We wrestle in the spirit, but it affects us in the flesh. And God says, let me tell you this. You're my soldiers in my army. I've equipped you to fight this battle, but fight it my way with my weapons. And I expect you to be victorious. Moses saw the oppression of his people in Egypt. What did he do? He killed somebody with his bare hands. Was that the right solution? How many of you want to kill somebody with your bare hands this morning? But the next time he went in with God's staff and with God's words, and he went before Pharaoh in the power of God and did free his people from the Egyptians. There's a big difference between doing it in our own way and our own strength or doing it in God's strength. So how does he say we do it? Well, we put on the whole armor of God so we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, I know you've heard the armor of God since VBS. You don't want to hear it again. But today, hopefully, I'll teach it the right way, and you'll finally understand it. All right? 
So let's read the armor of God, Ephesians 6, 13 through 17. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. A pastor of mine once told me that sometimes the Bible gives us the answers, and then we have to find out what the question is. Does that remind you of this? They give you the answer. You have to come up with a question. So we're going to play Jeopardy today. All right? The category is weapon use. It's all the same. And the answers are things that start with the letter D. Okay? We have the answers given to us in the armor of God. We've got to find out what the question is. So let's go for 200 points. All right? $200. We'll do points. It's church. The belt of truth is needed to fight against this favorite weapon of Satan. Deception. Very good. Someone's got 200 points. Deception. The enemy loves to deceive us, and we have a belt of truth to defend against it. And the place that this usually works, we know that straight out lying and everything destroys relationships, but more often than not, it's in incomplete understanding. Let me give you a little story about Bobby and Sammy. They were born into the same house on the same day, and they soon became best of friends. At about nine months, Bobby pulled himself up on the couch and realized he could walk on two. Sammy tried but couldn't. He's still just getting around on all fours. A couple months later, Bobby started to talk, and his parents could understand him. Sammy tried everything but just got some noises and sounds out and couldn't ever communicate. And then came a sad day. Bobby was five. He put on his backpack. He ran out the door, got on the school bus, and all Sammy could do was pull himself up to the window and cry as his best friend went off to school. Sad story. Till I tell you, Bobby's a five-year-old boy and Sammy's a five-year-old cocker spaniel. <laughs> Did I tell you the truth? Did you draw the wrong conclusion? How many times have you said, I've heard enough, I know what I need to know, I get it. I told him in the early service that before there was gay marriage, I married my nephew 14 years ago. What? That should disqualify me as an elder, right? I actually performed a wedding ceremony for my nephew 14 years ago. But sometimes you just hear one piece of information, he married his nephew, what does that mean? And it starts these rumors, gossip, right? God says you've got to know more than just facts. You have to know truth as God sees truth. Sometimes we become too close-minded and stubborn to really listen, to find out what the whole truth is, to really understand the other person. There was a TV show called Lie to Me. Anybody ever seen that where a guy's an expert at determining whether or not people are lying? So they bring him into court. They say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, not the truth? So I help you, God. And he says, no. The judge says, what do you mean? He goes, I don't know what the whole truth is. Good answer. Nobody but God really knows what the whole truth is. If we don't seek out the whole truth, if we don't find out exactly what is going on from God's perspective, we can cause serious problems in our relationships. So we know that being untruthful is one thing, but not pursuing the full truth is where most things happen. Derek Prime, who was a pastor, said, we cannot do what is right until we know what is true. So there's our first battle point, pursue truth. Second one, for 400 points, 
Come on, there he goes. The breastplate of righteousness keeps us in the battle and protects us from this sideliner. What is disqualification? As uh, Dan prayed this morning, that we have been given the righteousness of Christ. It's been imputed to us at salvation. We have this breastplate of righteousness. So we don't need to put it on every morning. What we need to do every morning when we put on our armor is make sure that we live out this righteousness that God's given us, that we live as righteous people. Sin will destroy our witness. It'll destroy relationships. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Satan will tempt us to ruin our witness, our testimony, our effectiveness for the gospel. How many times have you seen it with Jim and Tammy Baker and Swagger and Jesse Jackson? How many people have supposedly named the name of Christ and then fallen into terrible sin and become a laughing stock? Bill Bennett wrote the Book of Virtues, which became very popular a long time ago. And when it was at the height of its uh, frenzy and, and a bestseller, it found out that he had a multi-million dollar gambling habit. So a Washington Post reporter, Michael Kenzie, wrote this about him. Bennett's multi-million dollar gambling habit has lit a lamp of happiness in even the darkest hearts. As the joyous word spread, crack flowed like water through the inner city streets, family court judges began handing out free divorces, and children lit bonfires of the Book of Virtues. Although it may be impossible for anyone famous to become permanently discredited in American culture, Bennett clearly deserves that distinction. Ouch. Paul said to the Roman church, You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say that a man should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We have a relationship problem because of sin. Every relationship has, every problem has a sin issue. And we have to always say, Is it my sin? What can I do about my sin that I brought into this relationship problem? We tend to look at the other person's sin, right? The Jews really wanted a Messiah to come and save them from the sin of the Romans because the Pharisees didn't have any sin. How often do we say, God, fix that person. Stop their sin. It's offending me. Instead of saying, you know what? Maybe I got to take the plank out of my own eye before I go after them. And maybe by the time God's taken the plank out of my eye, it won't seem so bad. Someone once said, our sins seem a whole lot more grievous when we see other people commit them. There's some truth to that, right? We need to look inward before we look outward. Thomas Kempis said we should accuse ourselves and excuse others. If we're living righteously, we can help other people who are struggling. If not, well, then they have no reason to listen to us. We've become discredited and our message is empty and our witness no longer would have any credibility. They don't have any reason to have confidence in us. The messenger's been discredited, not the message. People want to know we believe what we believe by watching what we do first. That's how they learn. All right, life is caught, not taught. Teaching my son Tim how to drive, and I see he goes 65 on express ray, speeds up for yellow lights, and runs through stop signs, at least rolls. I said, all those terrible things he learned from my wife. Yeah. <laughs> how many... How many of you may have fought in the car on the way to church and then told your kids when you opened the door, okay, be holy now, kids? Right? I mean, it's, it's, we need to live righteous lives. 
Bottom line is that he wants to disqualify us and take us out of the battle altogether. He wants us to not have that righteous life. But the secret is to love God and love other people. Why? Well, because all sin is a defect in love. If we loved God perfectly and loved everyone else perfectly, we would not sin. That's why it's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your and love your neighbor as yourself. So every conflict involves sin. We have to be honest about our sin, our involvement. All right. So we got deceit and we got disqualification. Let's go for 600 points. 600 points. The answer is the gospel of peace is God's armor piece designed to help us from experiencing this downer. What is discouragement? If Satan can't deceive us or he can't disqualify us, he will certainly try to discourage us. He will get us to think about something other than the great gospel of peace in which we stand. We're saved by grace through faith. We have peace with God. We have peace with one another. He's broken down those walls of separation. He's forgiven us. He's conquered death. He's given us eternal life. He's given us hope. He secures us. He indwells us. And yet Satan will say that's not true. He will tend to discourage us and saying, no, don't, don't believe those things. You can't act in those things. You can't live by grace. You're not sustained by grace. It's your responsibility to justify or sanctify yourself. And we move into legalism. Boy, nothing destroys a marriage or a family or a relationship with children faster than starting to put your own rules and regulations on top of the great gospel of peace. Forgetting who Christ is, what he's done for us. Satan just loves to discourage us. He loves us to ignore this wonderful, glorious gospel that we just celebrated at the table today. And how he does it is by getting us to look at the wrong person. If you're in a conflict with someone and you're trying to fix that other person, you typically will get pretty discouraged, if not downright defeated, because you can't fix them. You can only fix you. But then when you look at you and you spend all your time focusing on you, you wind up getting pretty depressed, pretty disappointed in yourself if you think it's up to you. But if you fix your eyes on Christ and on the joy and the abundant life and the hope and the gospel of peace that he has brought you into the kingdom with, you won't be discouraged. So our victory in this one is to stay focused on Christ, the Prince of Peace. If we lose that peace, if we lose our focus on him, then discouragement can come in quickly and ruin our relationships. And very often when that peace is gone, we start saying, I want this, I want this spouse, I want these kids, I want this job, I want this church. Instead of saying, Christ, what do you want? What would bring you glory? How can the gospel most be advanced? What is your best for that person I'm in a conflict with? Stay focused on Christ because it's all about him. He's broken down all the walls. Why do we try to build them back up? He's given us peace. The enemy wants to attack us there. If he can't, here's where he goes after us next. He goes after us in the area of our faith. The shield of faith defends against this enemy of our souls beyond all the shadows. The question is, what is? Come on, this is the easiest one of them all. Shadow of doubt. I think this is where the enemy works the hardest. He wants us to believe that God and other people have ulterior motives for everything they do. 
Where did it start in the garden? Hath God said? First thing, doubt God. Doubt God. Really? You're surely going to die? Is that really what he meant? Did he say you really couldn't eat that fruit? He starts making us suspect God. He starts making us wonder if we serve God, if we're going to have to go to some desert someplace and hunt bugs under rocks to feed our kids and eventually be beheaded by ISIS. That's not what it is to serve God. It's just there's, is it? I mean, no, he, he sent you here. It's not that bad, right? God is light. There's no darkness in him. There's no shadow of turning with him. He is forever the same, never changing, always true. And yet Satan gets us to question him. Question his character. God, are you really that loving, that merciful, that gracious, that faithful? Are your promises really true? Are they unshakable? Are are they true for me? Are you really working in my life for all things for the good? Are you really completing the good work that you've started in me? Are you going to bring me safely home someday? Am I secure in you? We start to doubt. The enemy wants us to believe certain things about God, but let me tell you, the answer is to believe God. Man, he hasn't given up his throne. He won't lose to Satan. His power will always prevail. He has not turned his back on any one of his children. He's not mistreated us or failed to love us. He's not going to come short of meeting any of our needs, fulfilling any of his promises. He's a God who can be relied on. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Do not let the enemy doubt or cause you to doubt your God and what he said about you and what he's done for you. But after you've believed God, try to give others the benefit of the doubt as well. Haven't you found this? this I love this imagery of this, the flaming darts that come and stick. Well, if you don't have a shield up to deflect those darts, They're going to come, they're going to hit, and they're going to stick and fester and burn. It's like, you know, little Cupid flies around on Valentine's Day with these love arrows. Well, we got an enemy that throws these darts that are burning darts. Somebody has said something to you or done something to you, and it it festers, it burns, and and you, you begin to doubt that person's motives. You doubt their truthfulness. You doubt their salvation. You begin to wonder what's going on with that person, and and all of a sudden you have this conflict with them. It burns, it festers, and it causes discord. And what God says is, hear them out. Try to reason with them. Try to get their perspective. Try to get the whole truth. Try to figure out what's going on. Maybe it was a sin issue. There's always forgiveness. Don't let the enemy come in and cause you to doubt a person without you actually going to them and listening to them and hearing them. And a family friend that always says, I don't argue with people. I just tell them where they're wrong. How often do we go quick to the argument and trying to tell people where they're wrong as opposed to trying to listen to them, right? The old adage, walk a mile in their shoes, at least you'll be a mile away from the problem and you'll have their shoes, right? Above all, above all, take on the shield of faith to defend against doubt. This is the one where the enemy loves to work. So he can't deceive, he can't disqualify, he can't discourage, he can't bring doubt into our lives. Let's go to the last one for a thousand points here. The answer is, when used properly, the helmet of salvation keeps this from sidetracking us. The question is, what is distraction? 
we are so easily distracted. I put something out in the update for the orchard that he started with an apple, and now it's the Apple iPhone. Don't we have so many things to distract us today? TV and social media and work and cares of this world. It's probably busier than it's ever been, and Satan loves to keep us busy. It takes an effort to try and think like a redeemed man. But God says, I've given you a helmet of salvation. I've given you a Christian thinking cap. I've given you the mind of Christ so that you can think contrary to the worldly thoughts that I'm bombarding you all the time. This battle is one that rages in our minds. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in pulling in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. Did you, did you see these words? Strongholds, arguments, knowledge, thoughts. It's in the mind. Satan loves to distract us so we don't think. We are a divided people because we are not a thinking people. Does anybody know what the word muse, M-U-S-E, means? To ponder, to meditate, to think. Guess what amuse means? Amusement. Means not to ponder, not to think, but to go, go, go. We have amusement parks in this country. Our lives are geared around amusement. Anything that the enemy can do to keep us from taking that time to sit down and ponder and think like a Christian. We're a fragmented society in part because we're not a thinking society. So our victory in this one is to think rightly on right things. Again, Derek Prime says we cannot do what is right until we know what is true. We cannot act rightly until we think rightly. Think like Christ, you'll act like Christ. Think like the world, you'll act like the world. Proverbs 23.7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul calls for unity in Philippians 2 by saying, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, having one accord of the same mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Paul says the key to unity is to think, to consider, to use your mind. The victory is to put on our Christian thinking cap and begin to ask maybe what would Jesus think more than what would Jesus do. Think right, we'll act right. All right, time for final jeopardy. We're out of time here. Category is things Satan likes to take from us. The final jeopardy answer, also known as the sword of the spirit. Let's go to our returning champion first, Andy Set. <laughs> How much did you wager, Dan? All? Good, safe bet. What's your answer? What is the Word of God? Very good. Here's one that Satan loves to come after us for. He wants to take the Word of God away from us. He wants to disarm us of the Word of God, make us believe that this book here is not sufficient for all things in life and godliness, even though it says it is. Sin keeps us from the Word, and the Word keeps us from sin. And this is Satan's favorite thing. Get this sword out of their hands so they can't fight. He thinks we need something else. That's what he's always trying to tell us. The word is not sufficient. You need Dr. Phil. You need Reader's Digest. You need your best friend. You need Facebook. You need your psychiatrist. You need, I don't know, Oprah. What is it? You need something else beside the Bible in order to live a godly life. 
Not true. The world doesn't have the answers unless by chance they stumble on biblical principles. How often are we having a fight with somebody in our living room and the Bible sits on a coffee table unopened? The great arbitrator not being used to resolve the conflict. Without our swords, we can't fight and we'll be defeated and we'll see division. But with them, we can bring down those walls and see the togetherness that we're looking for. You ever heard the expression, God says it, I believe it, that settles it? The middle part doesn't matter. God says it, it settles it. No matter whether you believe it or not. And sometimes we just have to say, God, your word says this, I guess I'm going to have to do it. That's all there is to it. All right, we're done with the board. Take a look at these weapons. These are all the tricks the enemy has in his bag. If there were any more, God would have given us more armor. So think about the relationship problems you're having today, and I'll guarantee you it's going to be because of one or more of these things that you're having that problem. Basically, what does God say? Well, love more, sin less, trust me, and think like Christ. Your relationship problems will go away. Simple stuff. One more thing. Paul says that the battle station for the war is on our knees. In verse 18 of chapter 6, he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all the perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Prayer is uniquely suited for division. When we neglect prayer, we neglect God in a situation. We neglect the needs of the other person that we're having the issue with. If someone's hurt you, pray for them. We're supposed to pray for our enemies. If someone you know needs some straightening out, pray and God will usually straighten you out. That's how he likes to work. It's hard to fight with someone when you're on your knees. Spurgeon said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. And he also said, work like it all depends on you, but pray knowing that it all depends upon God. We've got to stand before God in his strength and then kneel before him in our weakness. That's how the battle is won. All right, let me just apply this. What if you don't know the Lord? Is Satan working in your life too? Yeah. You may know some truths about Christianity, but you don't know the whole truth. You may be disqualified. You are. You are currently separated from God, out of fellowship with him. Are you discouraged? Well, you have no hope, according to the scripture. Apart from Christ, you are without hope. Are you doubting? Are you not believing in God? Absolutely. Are you distracted? So many people are just too busy to take the time to really consider the things Christ has claimed. Are you ignorant of the word of God? The Apostle Paul, before King Agrippa, said he had a ministry, which was to go to the lost and open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Paul believes, as does the scripture teach, that apart from Christ, you are under the power of Satan in darkness. I pray today that God would open your eyes and bring you out of that darkness into his marvelous light. That today would be the day you resolve the most important relationship issue you have, and that's your issue with God. He has paid the price. He's offered you salvation as a free gift. Today's the day to realize you've been duped by an enemy. Don't long, no longer live in that. What about us as believers? Well, be truthful if we're being deceived. If we're disqualified, make things right the best we can and try to live right. If we're discouraged, well, focus on the hope, on God's promises that are sure and true. If we're doubting, have faith that God is working in our lives because he says he is. 
Are you distracted? Begin to think rightly on right things. Find that time to meditate on the things that are good and pure and lovely and anything praiseworthy that he tells us to. It'll change your lives and reduce your anxiety. Are you disarmed? Pick up the word of God. Seek godly counsel. Unity's in jeopardy everywhere we look. But God commands that we be united and he makes it possible for us in Christ to do so. He says, face your issues head on and face them in my strength, using my weapons, battling my way, understanding that these battles are winnable and will be because of Christ. We have an enemy that wants to keep us divided and we have a savior that wants to keep us united. Satan might be good at the game, might be the Ken Jennings, but Christ is way better. Take a look at this about the battle belonging to Christ. Are we deceived? Christ is the truth. Are we disqualified? He is our righteousness. Are we discouraged? He is our peace. Are we doubting? He's the author and finisher of our faith. Are we distracted? He's given us his mind. Are we disarmed? He's the living word of God. This might be a difficult battle, but one thing we're assured of, that in all things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are often so ignorant to the basic things of your word. We don't give enough credit to the war that goes on around us, and we fall prey to it, unaware of the schemes that are working in our lives. So I pray, Lord, that today, this day, that your word would change the hearts and minds of those you love and of those you've been seeking, that they may pursue this battle and the victory in this battle by your strength, according to your methods. We thank you that you love us so much, that you care for us enough to help us overcome the issues and trials we have. And I thank you for this church that's united at this point and pray you would keep us that way, keep the enemy and his schemes far from us. So may we go out as brethren dwelling in unity, not only to please you, but to please us as well. We ask these things for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.